Thank you, brother. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Thanks for being here today. We'll be this morning again in Matthew chapter 6. So if you brought a Bible, you can turn with me there. And if not, underneath the seat in front of you, there should be a blue one. And you can find Matthew in the New Testament. We'll be looking in just a minute at Matthew 6. Church, we're uh, halfway done with a, a short series of four sermons in which we're considering four different texts in the Gospels on the topic of money. The first week, John the Baptist helped us see that a genuine repentance will reveal itself in a transformed use of money and possessions, that as God works in our lives, then we'll see it in how we use money. And last week, we discovered that if we treasure God, then we'll leverage money for spiritual gains. And the text ended with that kind of hard word that it is impossible to serve God and money simultaneously. That there's only one throne of our lives and either God or greed will sit there. We'll either serve money here on earth where moth and rust destroy or we'll serve God in heaven where he reigns. Either God or greed will be God. I read a few weeks ago that uh, Martin Luther, the reformer said, what sort of God is it that's not even capable of defending himself against moth and rust? Isn't that fantastic? Today we'll continue in Matthew 6 as we consider one of the most insidious temptations when it comes to money. And that temptation is to allow ourselves to be consumed with worry and anxiety over our resources. That is, to allow ourselves to be consumed with what we have or don't have in such a way that we're always concerned with not having enough. In the most practical way, Jesus will show us today why that's such a bad way to live. So if you would follow with me, starting in verse 25, it says this, Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and, let, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not much more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This passage teaches us not to be anxious and worried about money. In fact, it says it's sinful because it betrays 
a disposition of trust towards God and instead portrays a disposition of trust and confidence in ourselves. Six times in those 10 verses, the word anxious occurred. Six times in just a paragraph and then one sentence. Anxious, 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 anxious. Who's anxious about how many times we were just told not to be anxious? (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) Anxiety is enormously common today. In fact, it is now considered the number one mental health struggle in the United States. Now, to anybody who's sort of predisposed, if you will, to anxiety, maybe physically even you have experiences of it. Statistically, that's gonna be quite a few people in the room this morning. Understand that this passage is not speaking about a physical feeling of anxiety, and it's not talking about anxiety in general. This is speaking very specifically about an absorption with money. It's being consumed with money in such a way that you're always stewing about it. If you're somebody that struggles with anxiety generally, I would say to you, I get it, rest assured, I understand. But let's work together today to think about a specific kind of worry. Worry as it relates to money. The relationship between money and anxiety may at first appear to be circumstantial. That is driven by circumstances. So consider a few statistics. Not including mortgages, the average American household carries $137,063 in debt. A third of us have zero saved for retirement. 60% do not have even $1,000 saved for an emergency. And 63% live paycheck to paycheck. Those kinds of stats make it sound like the reason people get worried about money is they don't have enough of it. And if they just had more, then the worry would stop. Now, it's true that inflation has been a gut punch to all of us. And if you need to borrow money for anything, it's going to cost you way more than it did a year ago. It's tempting to think more money would relieve the anxiety and the stress. And you can fill in the amount. But have you ever thought, if I just had blank, then this would all be solved? But in most situations, our circumstances are not the problem, nor is money, more of it, the solution. I'm convinced of that because of what this passage says. And the data itself statistically demonstrates that that doesn't work. Take this for example. Remember I just said a moment ago, 63% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. That is. You're juggling when you're paying what to get through a two-week span of time. Well, 60% of millennials 
who make over $100,000 a year live paycheck to paycheck. It has nothing to do with the amount of money. It has everything to do with the heart. Now, Jesus is very clear in this text that the only solution to worry about money is trust. Trust not in ourselves, but trust in God. And so Jesus in this text makes a tremendous case against anxiety, anxiety about money. In fact, if we go back through the passage slowly and carefully, you'll find he actually says six different ways why we should not be anxious about our resources. Six different ways. I want to go through them quickly and really dwell on one of them. You could think of them as Jesus is saying, don't be anxious because, and then he fills in six different reasons. Number one, Jesus says, don't be anxious because money anxiety overestimates physical needs. Money anxiety overestimates physical needs. That's what he's getting at in the last half of verse 25. Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? Friend, if you find yourself constantly fretting over bills, the stock market, if you're consumed with never having enough, if the major stressor in your life is, how do I make it to the next paycheck? Then what's happened is for a variety of reasons, some of them may in fact be outside your control, but for a variety of reasons for you, life has become about stuff. If your mental energy is primarily wrapped up in concern about resources, then you're making life about materialism. And that's not what life is for. That's not what life is about. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But church, we are more than money. Yes, we need food. Yes, we need clothing. This passage points that out. And yet that's not the substance of our lives. And so Jesus starts out his list by saying, don't overestimate your needs. Don't let your needs be what consumes you. There's something better to live for. Now, the second reason is sort of the opposite. It's that money anxiety underestimates God's special care. So on the one hand, we have a tendency to overestimate the significance of our needs and underestimate the devotedness of God to care for his own. At the start of verse 26, Jesus uses a simple illustration to make this point. He says, look at, look at the sky and look at the birds. Birds aren't consumed by food. They don't save up for retirement. They're not checking their 501K. They are not giving themselves endlessly to storing more and more and more and more and more. And yet, God feeds them. And they're only birds. They're only birds. Now, if you have a pet bird, don't write me an email. 
Jesus' point is, they're only birds. They are not made in his image. They are not the crown jewel of his creation. Friend, you are. You are the only thing God created with a soul. The only thing that will go forever. The only thing made to relate to him. And if God so clothes even birds, how much more will he make sure you are clothed? That's Jesus's assertion. The end of verse 26, he says, are you not of more value than they? The last time I parked under a tree, I was later made very aware. We have no shortage of birds in Tempe and they have no shortage of food, apparently. And so if God in his common grace takes care of something as simple as a bird, how much more, Christian, will God take care of you? Beloved, God cares for you. And he will somehow, Jesus is saying, make sure that you have enough food in your stomach and clothing for your body. Most often, of course, these provisions come through hard work and the savings that that hard work provides. But Jesus is unquestionably saying, we can find this in other texts, if you can't work, then God will provide work, and so God will work it out, if you will, for you. Look far more at God's character and his care than at your needs. Rehearse how he's been faithful to you in the past if you're worried about the present. Look at the birds. God takes care of them. On your seat, if you didn't notice, was a little sticker, maybe stuck to your hind end now, but it just says, look at the birds of the air. Encourage you to take that and put it somewhere where you would be reminded that like God provides for them, how much more will God provide for you. Now, Jesus' third point related to anxiety, why we shouldn't be anxious about money, is that anxiety is ineffective. It doesn't work. Now, maybe you're saying so far to this message, all right, Chuck, I get that I tend to be overestimating my need and underestimating God's care, but I can't stop worrying about money because money worry is what fuels me to do what I got to do so I'm not worried about money. You get the logic there? But friend, money anxiety doesn't actually work because it doesn't matter how much you save. If you look to your savings for your place of confidence, you'll never have enough. Jesus says in verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? That's a rhetorical question, but we know the answer. Nobody, no one, it doesn't work. All our fretting and worrying amounts to nothing at the end of the day. It doesn't solve any problems. It doesn't lead to solutions. After Jesus said that, then in the very next verse, he then moves back to another illustration. He says, consider 
the lilies. Look at the flowers around you. Now here, unlike birds, we've got to use our imagination. We have flowers for like two weeks of the year. But maybe you've seen a picture of a lily. Flowers are beautiful. Their clothing, if you will, is far more beautiful than the wealthiest person's ability to clothe themselves. That's what Jesus is saying. And yet, flowers aren't stressed out. They're not worried about coming in a little bit later this year. They're not consumed with stress and worry and anxiety that one petal is a slightly different shade than another. They feel no stress about whether they're getting organic fertilizer or regular fertilizer. They're not consumed with the fact that, geez, I wish I, wish I looked like that one next to me. No, they simply are what they are. They live in the reality and according to how they've been created. They don't labor to make money for their clothes, and yet God takes care of them. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying money, anxiety, is unnecessary. It's unnecessary because if God takes care of them, how much more will he take care of you? God is in charge. We are his creatures. And he created us as the apex of his creation. And if he takes care of things as small in such a beautiful way, how much more will he take care of those who bear his image? Friends, God will take care of you. And if you reach the point in which there are circumstances such that you can't do the normal things people do to have the resources they need, then God will provide through other means. He'll use our families and he'll use this church family to help you figure out how to get those basic needs met. Now, if you would look at verse 31, Jesus asked three questions. These are critical to grasp for the rest of the text. They're so simple and easy, they're uh, incredibly tempting to just jump right past, but they're interpretively very important. He says, what will we eat? What will we drink? And what will we wear? And then he says that the Gentiles seek these things. Now, this stings a bit to hear, but Jesus says money anxiety is ungodly. Gentiles is a way of referring to people at that day who didn't follow God. People who weren't part of the covenant people of God. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. These were the ones not in with God. Friends, people who don't know God find themselves anxious about money. But when God's people are thinking rightly, then they have no need to worry. You see, we know and serve God, and God promises to take care of us. But perhaps you are a follower of Jesus. You have been saved from sin and rescued into new life with Him. That simple, glorious truth of the gospel 
doesn't remove the temptation to live like you used to live. And so there is still an ongoing temptation to live for wealth. The problem, of course, is that lasting financial worries is functional atheism. It's living like we used to live. We might say we believe God and trust Him to provide, but if at the stoplight, the thing that constantly consumes us is worry about stuff, if at the grocery line, the thing that we're so consumed with is how do I, how do I buy this? And it's demonstrating to us that there is a remaining unbelief, a struggle to obey. And so Church on Mill, let's be people who make a commitment to every time we recognize, oh, I'm worrying again about resources, that instead of going down that path, we turn again to trust. I don't think that's a light switch you flip once. I think you do it over and over and over and over. Incessant money anxiety is ungodly, Jesus is saying. Again, I get how confrontive that is, but it's good news because Jesus is showing us a way out. My favorite part of the passage is right after those three questions. In verse 31, here they are again. Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Why? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Here's what he's saying. When the cost of eggs soar, when you get an unexpected tax bill, when you're eating ramen, not because you like it, when your car's in the shop again, when your savings, if you're among the few that have it, then all the tossing and turning in bed at night is not gonna solve those problems. The place to look, the thing to remind yourself of, is that you have a father that your Father knows. You see, brothers and sisters, in God you have not only a Lord, not only a King, not only a Savior, not only a Creator, you have a faithful Father. You have a Heavenly Father. A Father who is never absent, never disinterested, never, uh, never unaware, never caught up with His own responsibilities, and never indifferent to your needs. A father who always is attentive to his own. A father who is not absent, but who is present. And a father whose resources never come up empty. What a truth that is. Christians can be people who don't get ulcers over bills because we're confident we have a faithful father, a heavenly father who always gives us what is good at the right time. That's his promise. Now, speaking of that promise, speaking of a promise, look at verse 33. Notice that it says, all these things will be added to you. All these things will be added to you. Here's my question. 
What's the these things? What things? Is it a new penthouse condo on Tempe Town Lake, top floor? Is, is it that new red Ferrari? Is it when you graduate from ASU, then you can go on to Notre Dame and get your PhD for free? Is it a cruise, a big one? Three months. You don't like the sound of that, Randy? No? Me neither. What's the these things? Well, friends, when we're interpreting the Bible, remember that the dominant way we know what words mean is by the context they're placed in. So remember I told you that those three questions were really important? What we eat, what we drink, what we wear. Those are the things Jesus is talking about. You see, we're not promised that we get all the things that we want. We're promised we get what we need. And apparently in a biblical worldview, we have what we need when our most basic need to survive are met. Food, drink, clothing. God's making a rather shocking, scandalous promise here. That is that we're learning together that we don't need to worry because our faithful Heavenly Father will give us what we need. We've got to learn to have our wants recalibrated. Anyone who's a parent understands this at some level. We know, parents, that if we give our kids everything they want, that is the most sure path to their demise. They will turn into rotten brats. And our good God, our Father, does not want us to turn into rotten brats. And so he doesn't give us everything we want. But he does promise to give us what we need. Now for time's sake, let me mention just the last one very quickly. I won't explore it much with you. The sixth reason Jesus says don't be anxious about money is that money anxiety incorrectly prioritizes tomorrow over today. Friends, the truth is, we are to prepare, in a sense, for the future, and yet, we need not be consumed with the future because we might not even make it there. Today has got enough trouble of its own. Tomorrow's troubles need not worry us yet. They'll be there when we get there. We can instead be concerned with today. Now, those are Jesus' six assertions. Those are his six death blows to money anxiety. He's saying it's completely unnecessary. Knock it off, Jesus is saying, because it doesn't work. Instead, give yourself to something else. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine how much mental energy, how much physical energy, 
stamina. How much time we could harness towards other things if we stopped worrying about resources and instead exchanged all that stewing, that hamster wheel spinning for something else. Jesus tells us in this passage that we're to live for something more. That's what he asked in that challenging question in verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Of course, the answer to that is yes, but what's the more? Well, again, context determines what the words mean. Verse 33, I think, is the answer. The more that life is for is that we're to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, food, drink, clothing, will be added to you. Brothers and sisters, we were not made to stockpile stuff. We were not made to be consumed by materialism. We were made for something more, something better. What is it? Jesus said it's to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, I get that that is an incredibly churchy thing to say. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What does that even mean? It's one of those phrases Christians sometimes say to each other, and then we walk out those doors and we don't actually have any idea what that looks like. There are an endless number of ways to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They are as many as there are snowflakes. You've got to imagine those, like the flowers. But, friend, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of ways that God can work through you to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. But I think they all would fit into three buckets. I think that ultimately living for God's kingdom and His glory means that we're living for the spread of the glory of God. That we're living that God might be known and enjoyed. So how do we do that? Well, number one, we seek to live like that by having a passion for the salvation of all peoples. We live with a concern for the glory of God. We live seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness when we're concerned that others who don't yet know Jesus in the way we have come to know Jesus, that they would come to know Him. Brothers and sisters, the most precious, wonderful, amazing gift you and I have been given is our salvation. And we, therefore, want that gift to be given to others. And so we live with an open-handedness about our lives and our stuff, concerned that others would come to know Christ. I think that second bucket that we could put that in is that we live with a passion for the spiritual growth of God's people. And that includes ourselves, that we prioritize the care 
for the progress of others spiritually. I mentioned standing in line earlier at the grocery store. Imagine if when you're standing in line waiting, if like me, there's a temptation for impatience. If you find yourself in that line this week, fretting over your finances, then the thing to do isn't to get all bent out of shape about your budget. Instead, give your mind over to praying for fellow Christians, praying for people who don't know God. The only way not to think about an elephant isn't to tell yourself, don't think about an elephant. Instead, it's to give your mind to something else. So seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is using those moments in which we find we're worried to turn that worry around into something good. And what could be better than praying for the progress of people spiritually? Maybe even in that moment, you'll think of somebody specific and you can get your phone out and text them. Hey, just prayed for you. Want you to know I'm thinking about you. Imagine how that would serve someone to get something like that this week. I think a third bucket we could put a concern for God's kingdom and his righteousness is that we would be driven by a passion for the spread of gospel-centered churches all over the world. Because how is it that people will come to know the Lord and grow up in the Lord except through the body of the Lord? What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? It, it means that, that we're concerned that more and more and more people would come to know him, that we're concerned that those who do know him would grow up in him, and that we're concerned that there'd be more churches around the world. Within those three buckets are an endless variety of ways that God wants to work through you toward those ends. And there's a lifetime of stuff to be done there. So much so that excessive worry and fretting about resources is simply a waste. The Lord has good works for you to do. And when the mind is consumed with anxiety over stuff, it won't give itself to the reason for which you are alive. God's people are people learning not to give excessive attention to their needs. We're people learning because of what Jesus has said. Over and over and over, we're learning to give ourselves instead our very best to God's kingdom and his righteousness. When our highest ambition is to know God and grow up in him and see others do the same, when we are assured that we have right standing with God through the gospel, then our standing with others matters very little to us. And therefore, measuring up, having the same amount or more, looking a certain way, living a certain place, driving a certain thing, do you see how they don't matter anymore? How they're insignificant? May we be people who refuse to be preoccupied with the world and instead live for the next. And church, isn't that exactly how Jesus lived? I mean, he's the ultimate example. 
He lived in such a way that the Father provided for him. And the Father will provide for us. His priority was the will of God, so much so that during his three years of itinerant public ministry, Jesus said he had nowhere to lay his head. That is, that the the king of the cosmos gave himself over to humanity so much so that he lived homeless for three years. He traveled from town to town, and Hilton Honors did not take care of him. His heavenly father did. He had food, he had clothing, he had drink, and with that he was content. Beloved, if God took care of him, God will take care of us. So may we be people who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I want to encourage you that you would take the six things we've talked about this morning and put them to use throughout the week. If you can't remember them, then just take a Bible with you and go back to this list again and again and again. God says that we're transformed through the renewal of our minds. That is, we come to actually live in accordance with what we say we believe as we're convinced over and over and over. And eventually that transforms us to being in practice what we already are in principle. And nowhere is that practice and that process more difficult than in the area of money. If Jesus paid for our spiritual needs with his death, how much more will he pay for our material needs with his life? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't know God, then I've actually said nothing to you so far in this message. But let me take just a moment and try to speak to you directly. Friend, like every other person in this room, all of us, universally, we have prioritized ourselves and other things over God. The scriptures call that sin. And they tell us that the earn or the wage, the paycheck of sin is death. That death is spiritual now and physical in the end. But Jesus came to give his life that all who turn from sin and trust in him would have their moral debt, their sin, paid for. And not only that, that they would then be given his life. The basic message of Christianity is not stop certain things and start others. It's rather come to see your need for him and turn from sin and trust in him. If you do, then the one who, as the Old Testament says, owns the cattle on a thousand hills will harness and leverage his resources for your ultimate good. I hope you'll turn to him today. Church, will you stand with me and let's pray.
Before I pray for us, would you take a moment and pray about what you've heard? Father, it's always a little uncomfortable when we get to texts in the scriptures that deal with money. And yet we thank you that you've spoken to this important issue and we confess today a desire to live different and to recognize and to really come to terms with the fact that putting our confidence and trust in our resources doesn't work. And yet we've tried it again and again and again and again. And so today, afresh and anew, we ask you that as we say we're sorry, would you forgive? We thank you that you do. And we pray that as a result of what we've heard this morning that we'd have a fresh and new commitment to take this passage and to put it to work. We pray that Jesus is assertions, those six ideas, those truths about why we shouldn't worry about money and instead why there's all the reasons in the world to trust you. We pray that we would take him at his word because his word is always good and always true and always life-giving. We pray that we would be honest with each other and help each other live not for how much we can amass or how much we can save, but for a passion for the spread of your glory. This week, Lord, would you bring practical ways to mind through your spirit to help us put it into practice what we've heard. We thank you again for telling us the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.